This episode is brought to you by Fossil Reconstructions of Spinosaurus. If you don't like the way it looks, wait a minute. This is Wild Green Streams for Ecological Fiends. I'm Rhett. I'm Curtis. I'm Iona. And today on the show, we have a new segment, which we're calling Whoa! Whoa! This is a segment where we share stories sent to us by members of the group that will make us go, whoa. Whoa. So I think, Iona, you have the first whoa story. I do. So this whoa story is related to the weather. Um, creating rain snow and hail so one of the things that water needs to like become ice like even if you have like regular ice like if you've ever seen the videos of where someone has like a bottle of water and then they smack it really hard and it freezes in an instant like that that's if you have really really pure water with nothing inside it you can cool the water down below its normal freezing point because the water actually needs a little nucleation agent to like for the ice crystals to start forming around. So when you have like regular water, it's got like various ions and impurities and stuff. So that can like form the ice. Um, But if you have like purified water and you leave it, you can get it really, really cold. And then when you like hit it suddenly, it will all of a sudden like all the ice forms like that. So in- Wait, wait, so I've, I've seen videos of this on YouTube of people who put like a beer in the freezer and it's still liquid when they pull it out and then they bump it on something and you can watch the ice just go shing across the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it works with alcohol or beer the same way because it's got other stuff in it that's like not just water, but at mm-hmm. least, or sometimes people will have the ice, a thing, a cup of water and it's really cold and they like drop a little toy dinosaur in it and then it freezes instantly and then the little toy dinosaur is like trapped in ice. And apparently there was some historical thing where they thought that this happened to like a whole team of horses in some lake and that ended up not being true, but that would have been so cool <laughs> if it was. Um, not cool to the horse, well, cool to the horses, cool. but not, but not, not just cool, cool cold. Um, yeah. But yeah, RIP, turns out fake story, but I mean, we can At dream. least the horses were okay. And, yeah. <laughs> horses. <laughs> But so the same thing happens when in the clouds, when you're going to get snow or ice or anything like that, like there's always little tiny things that are floating around up there in the really cold, high atmosphere. And so most of the time, so like ice still needs that nucleation agent to form. And so most of the time it's like little particles of dust, dirt, stuff like that. But now they find out that bacteria can be like the causes of these things and can even be at the center of like enormous hailstones. So usually they thought it was like minerals or whatever, but now they said a large variety, this article in Live Science called Surprising Finds, Live Bacteria Help Create Rain, Snow, and Hail, found that bacteria, fungi, diatoms, and algae can persist in the clouds and be used as precipitation starters, which is crazy because that means like, you know, just another biological factor that can affect the weather that we didn't know about because they have special substances that help bind the water molecules in their very orderly fashion and they said that even some plant pathogens that are really important in snow formation so they think that like the plant pathogen is basically like hijacking the water cycle to like be distributed around because then it like glows up in the clouds and then comes back down and so it's like crazy so, so what you're so what you're saying is there are actually no there's actually no such thing as abiotic factors in the earth's atmosphere 
so far, I guess. I mean, I don't know about the wind and everything, but like. I mean, it carries spiders. Yeah, or carries (laughs) carries other. um, Pollen. When they have, there's like smoke and stuff like from fires, either prescribed fire or wildfires. Um, They've like measured the like biotic content of the smoke. And there's like way more biological material like in the smoke than out of it which i don't know if that's because it's just a product of the combustion mm-hmm. of that's burning or if it's like the little particles are like hijacking the smoke and like riding on it to be distributed that's like a very new field of study they like haven't i think they like pyro bio something like they like only recently like even got a name as like a field of study the biological components like a sci-fi of science <laughs> yeah and so but i was like whoa this is cool that not only are the and for the like ice and snow formation like not only are these bacteria causing it to form so like higher biotic content in the air could like maybe make more precipitation but also that there's this one pathogen that seems like it's like using the cycle to like spread itself around so i'm like crazy made me say whoa remember that scene in lilo and stitch where she has to bring a peanut butter sandwich to her puffer fish every single day because she thinks her puffer fish controls the weather like just saying living things controlling the weather isn't that bizarre she was just needed a microscope yeah, yeah. and some microscopic peanut butter much, and sandwiches. much smaller pet yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is definitely woe-worthy. I never really thought much about what even causes hail to happen, period. Never mind microbial aspects of it. I just mm-hmm. always assumed stuff gets real cold up there. That's what I thought. Yeah. And then it I turns mean, out you you need the little thing to like, uh, the little nucleation agent to like set it off. And it turns out like, not only is that a new piece of information, you need like, Oh, biotic things can do that too. It's like, that's crazy. And the plants can't catch a break with this because first they get hailed on and then they get a pathogen. (laughs) It melts and they get an infection from it. (laughs) Yeah. You thought you were safe? No. Mm -hmm. Is that like, is that like the plant version? Well, I was going to say the plant version of acid rain, but acid rain is the plant version of acid rain. (laughs) (laughs) But basically a thing that you thought was going to help you that ends up not helping you. Right. Speaking of things that you thought were going to help you that end up not helping you. (laughs) This is a bizarre one sent in by Wild Green Memes member Evan. This is a Smithsonian Magazine article entitled, When This Beetle Gets Eaten by a Frog, It Heads for the Quote-Unquote Back Door. And I'm just going to read one of the opening paragraphs because they phrase it so elegantly in only three sentences. And it tells you a, a beginning, middle, and end of a pretty amazing story. First, a frog snags the beetle and gulps it down whole. For a tense 115 minutes, nothing happens. Then the great reveal. The same shiny insect wiggles its way out of the amphibian's anus, leaving both frog and beetle alive and seemingly no worse for wear. Yeah, so this was a study done by ecologist uh, Shinji Sagura. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, um, at Kobe University in Japan. And basically, this ecologist observed a frog eat a Japanese water beetle. And the beetle traveled through the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, colon, and cloaca. And yeah, a frog, the beetle 
was cool in the end. Uh, and there is a lot of additional study going on here to see how you traverse the inside of a frog if you are a water beetle. They weren't sure if it was just a matter of the frog going through the digestive process of eat beetle, beetle, beetle go goes through stomach and intestines and happens to be lucky on the inside, or if the beetle is playing some role in this. So they actually used some wax on some of the beetle's legs and immobilized it, the legs that it uses for swimming, because it's a swimming beetle. Oh, that's And so is able to swim through the frog. They immobilized it. And none of the immobilized beetles made it through the frog. It'd be weird if, it, if one of those beetles had gone through this before, and they're like, oh, I got this. And then they're like, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm these, in danger. Uh, these, these digestive acids, usually I'm able to swim out of these, but uh, this this wax is not helping me out. But I bet you're wondering how I got into this situation. <laughs> the record scratch freeze frame. Yep, that's me here. But yeah, they uh, as the beetle is actually crawling in, and more or less swimming its way through a frog's digestive system and coming out fine on the other end. The weird part, which is still unclear and what they want to uh, continue to study, is whether or not the beetle at the end of the road, whether or not its movement is actually uh, stimulating and activating the sphincter <laughs> muscles of the frog. So yeah, uh, beetle goes in, beetle comes out, lives to uh, to fight another day and be swallowed by another frog just for the nightmare to begin all over again. <laughs> Good for that beetle. It's the it's the myth of Sisyphus in a uh, frog and beetle form. It, it's it's a, it's a never-ending nightmare that is the digestive tract of a frog, but yet emerges triumphant in the end. From the frog's perspective, that's a big what the fuck too <laughs> it's not a whoa it's like a because can you imagine being that frog like you could probably you could feel it yeah i cannot be comfortable and this this is like and it's not like a huge beetle but it's not like it's but like compared a to a frog or something like yeah if you compared the like proportions of the ratio of like the size of the beetle to the size of the frog and then you found like an equivalent thing for people like that'd be a lot like i've eaten like a really big like thanksgiving meal before and then been like oh, i'm so full can you imagine if that meal was moving terrifying <laughs> you had a turkey just jump out of you yeah turkey like starts kicking dinner. again you're like oh i don't feel so good the smithsonian article ends with the frog doesn't seem to be bothered by the little beetle's journey through its inside segura points out however I do not want to eat this beetle if I'm a frog, he tells the Times. I don't want to eat it if I'm me either, to be honest. <laughs> that just goes to show you when your parents tell you to chew your food, that you should listen. At this least. is how bad it could get. <laughs> this yeah. is how bad it could get. This could be you're... you if you're not careful. If you're eating Japanese water beetles, make sure they're not still moving by the time yeah. you swallow. That Crush is the, them. the moral of the story. Not that frogs are known for their chewing skills. <laughs> yeah, like, it's because they missed the memo. None of them listened to their parents. If you want to read the full study, it's in Current Biology. And the title is Active Escape of Prey from Predator Vent via the Digestive Tract. Thanks, Curtis. So my woe story was sent in by member Sonia. It's a study I that was published. I say I didn't get any woes, but I did get a what the fuck. 
So I will take it. I think that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty equivalent. It's like how many how many woes equals one what the fuck, you what's know? The, uh, what's, what's the what's the conversion currency? rate? What's the conversion rate of woes to what the fuck? I'm not sure. Well, I feel like woe can is more like splendor and wonder and what the fuck is more just like amaze disgust, which is exactly what I want from the story of the beetle who made it from point A to point B. Also, what determined like how did the beetle like did it know was it just just keep swimming because also like i mean frogs are not that big but also like the digestive tract of any most animals is like pretty windy so it's like you know like i think like for humans like humans are pretty compact with the digestive tract i mean i'm looking at the diagram 26 feet long i'm looking at the diagram and it is a freaking roller coaster down there exactly it's got loop de loops it's got uh like did the beetle know what was going like did the beetle know like ah yes i sense the exit or were they just like might as well keep on keeping on part of me wants to say it's a matter of gravity but no the intestines going upward and downward and insects usually go travel upwards they travel up and towards light minutes is impressive yeah that beetle was movement i wonder if it keeps track of which direction the frog is pushing it yeah so maybe it's maybe it's using the uh maybe the intestines are sort of pushing muscling mm -hmm. it along yeah Yeah, so maybe maybe the muscles are helping it but not doing far from doing all the work if the immobilized beetles were were unable to uh to to escape escape the darkness at least providing some kind of direction yeah or maybe the beetles in the study were kind of lucky ones and normally they just swim in a direction and hope that they're right it seems like it was pretty consistent with the yeah, because that's the like beetles. maybe because mm. like um, there's peristalsis, which is like the way that like muscles contract, like when you you know like if you're like swallowing food in your esophagus, it's like the way that they relax and contract above and below the food item to like move it down through the system. So like maybe that sort of like helped and then let the beetle not go backwards, maybe, but the beetle still had to move forwards on its own, and especially if the immobilized immobilized beetles didn't make it. Some of the beetles were able to make it out in six minutes. Wow. Six minutes? That's yeah. sounds like it's all beetles what, to me. That's what caused the ecologists to figure that, that's that it was actively the, yeah. the beetles like, playing. Even a regular, a regular food particle would not make it through the frog's digestive system that fast. No. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, by the way, the researchers from this study are on my guest wish list. Like, I really want to get them on this podcast. For the frog beetle one? Yes, yes. Yeah, and they think the deadliness of the stomach acid is actually playing a role in encouraging the beetle to get out as quickly as possible. I mean, if someone told me to run between point A to point B for freedom, and then they told me to do it again while covered in acid, I probably would go faster if I was covered in acid, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Fair. There's there's a reasonable. little bit there's a little bit of extra motivation there to be speedy. Yeah. Speaking of extra motivation, I have a study sent in by our member named Sonia, which was published in the IBIS, an ornithology journal, called Shorebird Embryos Exhibit Anti-Predator Responses. And so you'd say extra. Extra, yes. You can you can mute me for the rest of the uh <laughs> we're banning you from the group, actually. <laughs> Previous studies had shown that the embryos inside of eggs, so unhatched bird chicks, at least of some species, communicate with their parents through noises even before they hatch. So this study started with the question, do they change that up sometimes, maybe to protect themselves better from predators? 
So they did a couple different things to these eggs to see if it would change the rate that they called at. They put them in different sound environments. So they put them with like a simulated heart rate from the parent bird. They played alarm calls from their species. They played the calls of a raven, which is a common predator for them. This is a shorebird. And they played white noise just as a control for a noise that wouldn't be around in nature. It turns out that out of all of those things, the only one that the chicks responded to was the raven noise. When they played the different heart rates, there wasn't any change. When they played the adults' alarm calls, there wasn't a significant change from the white noise control. And they think that maybe that's not definitive. Like for instance, maybe the heart rate thing doesn't exactly matter if they, you know, maybe the birds somehow know that the parent isn't actually there at that point. So if you change the noise of the heart rate when they're just playing it in a little box, it might not be the full stimulus that they need. And then the alarm calls, the parents will make those for other reasons than that a predator is coming. Maybe like another bird that the parents have a um, territorial dispute with rather than a predator. But the raven noise totally, they would immediately cut the number of noises they were making and they'd wait until the raven calls stopped playing to speed up again. That's really cool. For me, the first thing that surprised me with this is that I had never considered bird chicks communicate at all before they hatch. Like I thought of them as kind of like little warm rocks. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I can't remember if I either knew that they made noises before they hatched or if I had just watched movies in which they have eggs that are about to hatch and you can like hear the peeping from like the almost hatched chicks like fly away home staple movie at my house where they they have some Canada geese and like she comes home and the eggs are like almost ready and you can hear them going like but that's also interesting because then it's like one of those things of the predator alarm call avoidance is like being innate because how would they know that from being not born yet and not seeing a predator yet? Yeah, that's pure instinct right there. And also, I wonder if over time, as the eggs get closer and closer to hatching, so they become more developed, if that changes, like at what point are they like, you know, still too much of just like yolk and nothing else that they like can't make a noise. And then, but eventually as they get closer to fully formed chick ready to hatch, their if their responses how they would change over time so this is reminding me of alligators actually i mean they they don't have the the mouth or anything to make a, a complex nest like a bird but they make a nest of decaying plant matter which then keeps the eggs warm and the young for alligators and i assume other crocodilians as well will start calling when it's time for them to hatch and inform the mother to come rip open the nest and and aid them in getting out easily. So it's not just a, a bird communication thing, but a it's a dinosaur communication. Thing. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Because they are they're both archosaurs, which are closest living relatives of dinosaurs. So possibly a dinosaur, a prehistoric dinosaur behavior as well. If if both of these creatures are exhibiting this behavior when separated by hundreds of millions of years. Funnily enough, and this is an obviously scientific source, but when you mentioned, Iona, that they do it in movies, I immediately thought of the movie Dinosaur. I was also thinking the movie Dinosaur. That was, I was thinking about it again, actually, the other day. Very, very scientific source where the- I mean, uh, it's called Dinosaur, so you know that it's about dinosaurs and that's accurate. My favorite documentary 
Yeah, my favorite. Dinosaur. My favorite is when my favorite the, uh, nonfiction film, Dinosaur. My favorite is when all the dinosaurs coexist at the same time period, and as well as lemurs that evolved after the dinosaurs <laughs> went extinct, and lots of creatures that came before the dinosaurs. But yeah, top notch documentary. So, and so, then there was actually another thing that they did in the study that I thought was interesting, which is they thought maybe they don't just react to noises maybe they react to light too because maybe it's different when the parents sitting on the egg versus when the parents not there but something really weird happened with that where they found that they actually called more frequently when they had more light like bright light caused the eggs to increase the rate that they were calling at instead of decrease and they don't really know why yet. They had a, a couple ideas, but they, they're just not sure. Interesting. Maybe, I don't know. My only thought would be that the eggs would be like, come back, sit on us again. We yeah. are exposed. <laughs> Maybe the parents are sitting on two of the eggs and the third one's like, hey, I'm over here. Yeah. I wonder if it could sense differences in light if it was a parent or a predator being completely obscured by light versus like sensing a shadow over or how or how how well you can detect light through an eggshell. And how much noise do they make? Like, is it loud? You know, I haven't heard a recording of it. I'm not sure. It's got to be loud enough that predators could hear it, though, for them to have this pre-programmed response, right? Mm -hmm. That is a pretty cool story. And as with so many things in science, I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. I immediately have 28 follow-up questions that could be a dissertation each on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to the members who sent in these stories. If you think you have another story that'll make us say whoa, or just want to share something that blew your mind recently, go ahead and leave it in the comments or shoot us an email. You can read more about these specific studies by going to the links in the description on this episode. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Curtis. I'm Iona. And happy Year of the Mushroom. Woo! You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. That's memes with an M, not streams with an S. Patrons get gifts in the mail, early episode releases, and of course, a shout out on the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank Hilary Matat, Liz Angie, Amanda M, Amanda Bryles, ooh, double Amanda, Annie Osborne, Brady O'Neill, Britt Donner, Marla Krauss, Corey Davis, Rachel Irvin, Amy Jones, Clark Sturdevant, Sarah Widener, Sinag Fletcher, Chrisana Mazur, Victoria, Cosmo, Robert Eisler, Deidre Kelleher, Nicole Downing, Sarah Thomas, Madison Bergstrom, Ivo Kuzmanovich, Kevin Bella, Zach Nelson, Leah, Haley Diaz, Lady Caray, Kim Sparks, Patrick Ulchi, Celia Connolly, McKinley, Joel Wasner, Serena Ray, Emily McCracken, Sage Rohrer, Megan Marcus, Persephone Ackerman, Sterling Klein, Carly Krieg, Kaylee Douglas Alexander, Jules Reckers, Kami Long, Mick, Digital Mobius, not to be confused with Digital Morbius, True. Annie Madden, Trent DeLiesel, Suad Yoon, Claire Vanderwood, Dylan Bruno, Live C, or Die, <laughs> <laughs> Anna Cohey, Daniel Calzadilla, Joanna yeah. Orfiao, Karen Martin, Laura Shepard, Benjamin Langlois, Eric Casier, great family, but they have the blues. Hillary McRae. Grayson. Natalie Hill. Theron Asaquia Donvado. Emma Mitchell. Claire Nichols. Chaotic Megan Energy. Lena Kay. Heather York. Aaron Dady. Olivia Reinhard. Skippy.
we're not laughing at you, Skippy. We've just gone through 500 other names. <laughs> Katie. Catherine Shaw. Harry George. Megan Lim. Spidey Books. My favorite kind. Marilyn Hefner. Rachel Perkins. Sean Lovin. Rain Y. Tony. Elena. Allison Vincent. Sam Adler. Tommy Patterson. Ilya Christensen. Anna Vilnight. Lanny Aroa. Ultimates. Madeline Mullen. Natasha Koifat. Kylie Marie. Scarlett Andes. Sally Ann Haas. Ryan Mandelbaum. Taylor Contro. Katie Rosati. Maggie Knight. Stephanie Tursky. Jenna Brune. Andrea Jordan. Thank you for listening. And thank you for the support. That's a good sign off.